You're listening to She Said What? Conversations at the Cowgirl Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Ward, the Director of Public Engagement at the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame. We'll take a deep dive into our archives and collections, talk to some of our honorees, and bring you on-the-spot interviews. So grab your hat and pull up your bootstraps. Get ready to enjoy She Said What? Conversations at the Cowgirl. In today's episode, we talk with incoming 2021 Patsy Montana Award recipient, Christina Voros, who is a cinematographer. She has worked on the hit series Yellowstone, being the only female director and director of photography. She has also worked with industry leaders such as filmmaker Tate Taylor and producer Oprah Winfrey. We are excited for our listeners to learn about who Voros is and how she went from being a bartender and fencing competitor to a cowgirl and cinematographer. Congratulations, first of all, Christina, on being Thank named you. our 2021 Patsy Montana Award recipient. This award honors women in the entertainment field that continue to advance the tradition of the cowgirl. What does this mean to you to be chosen for this award that recognizes both your work in film and being a cowgirl yourself? It gives me chills even to hear you say it. I, I was so speechless when I got the news from you guys. Spend a lot of time in this world, but I, I, I don't. I think because I'm in, I have so much deep respect for the women that I really consider to be true cowgirls. That I really don't think of myself as one. I'm sort of a, a visitor, having spent most of the last ten years of of my life surrounded by the landscape of the West and the characters of women that I, I so respect and, and deeply admire to even be at that luncheon surrounded by these remarkable women is just an honor in itself. So I was really blown away and incredibly humbled, especially because I grew up on the East Coast and I, I came to Texas about a decade ago. I, I married a cowboy and uh, didn't see that coming either. And, and really the entire landscape of my life changed, not just the geographical landscape, but the social and creative landscape as well. And so I, I've really found myself, you know, having completely fallen in love with Western stories and the Western way of life. And every person that I meet who embodies what it is to, to truly be a cowgirl, it, you know, gives me something to aspire to, you know, in my own world in terms of just grit and determination and, and, and strength and resourcefulness. So I'm blown away by the honor. You know, talking about being raised on the East Coast, you know, when I look at your background and from when we talked, I mean, you're young, but you've already lived so many lives. I mean, you've already done so, so many different things, right? You're somehow in the restaurant business, right? Was that in Boston? I have had a lot of lives and I, I, I like to think that one has led to another and they all kind of has turned into this dark tapestry that has made me who I am. But yeah, I grew up on the East Coast. My parents were Hungarian immigrants. They met in college in Boston uh, in the 70s. And so I grew up in Cambridge and my dad was a lawyer and my mom was a school teacher. And when I was about seven, they got into a restaurant venture and we moved to Cape Cod and they ran a restaurant there for most of my childhood. And so I grew up in an industrial kitchen and under chefs speaking French and bartending at the age of 15. And when I was about seven years old, my mom signed me up for horseback riding lessons. And, and it was sort of, it was, I fell completely and hopelessly in love with it, but it was sort of short lived just because of the logistics and, and our lifestyle and the financial realities and, and all that stuff. But my first love as a kid was always horses. And then that part of my life just got tabled for, you know, 25 years. But I, I grew up in Boston and wanted to be an actor and I was an English major and worked in restaurants to put myself through school and then worked in restaurants after I finished school and wasn't really sure what I was doing with myself and thought maybe I'd open a restaurant. And I ended up in film school kind of accidentally. I thought I wanted to, I was applying to graduate programs in theater, much to my parents' chagrin. I wanted to mm. study more to be an actor. They're like, God, no. And I ended up on a suggestion of a friend applying to film school. And the application process looked really interesting to me. And even though I knew nothing about cameras, or cinema, really. I didn't know what a cinematographer was. The application process looked really interesting and got me thinking and made me pull my portfolio together. Long and the short of it is I, I 
I got into NYU on a scholarship, and it was just such a remarkable opportunity that even though I had gotten into the theater program I wanted to go to, I put it on hold for a year to see what was around the bend should I want to pursue filmmaking. And so the entire geography of the first 25 years of my life was Boston, Cape Cod, New York. And Texas was a giant state that I'd never been to and knew very little about. I was recently reading a biography uh, about a woman who'd, who'd moved out west in, you know, in her 30s. And, and I, I thought to myself, God, if I'd read this 20 years ago, it would have seemed so wild or outlandish to just like upend your entire East Coast existence and move to a place you've never been before. And now I can't imagine my life had I not done that. So I ended up, you know, going from restaurants to film school to filmmaking in New York. And then when I was about nine years ago, I was shooting a movie for James Franco in Mississippi that was an adaptation of the Faulkner book, As I Lay Dying. And I met my husband, who was a wrangler and a stuntman on the film. And if you told either of us that nine years later we'd be married for five years and I would have moved to Van Horn, Texas, I don't think either of us would have ever been able to write that script. But um, mm-hmm. that, that's sort of how I ended up in Texas. And at first it was gradual and I'd come out for longer and longer stays. And then it, ultimately it was just easier for me to move to Van Horn than it was for us to move the horses to Brooklyn. And so, so this is home base now. Kind of going back to how you got into cinematography, it, it's very inspiring hearing your story of how you fell in love with film, but then also fell in love with the Western lifestyle. You didn't start there. It's somewhere you ended up how has this helped you in portraying the ranching life in Yellowstone and other films that you've worked on? When I first started dating my husband, uh, he's a uh, he's a great team roper. And as someone who'd grown up on the East Coast, I, I mean, I hadn't even been to a rodeo. And so I went to my first team roping with Jason and realized very quickly that either I needed to learn how to rope or I needed to make a documentary about people who knew how to rope because if you have been to team roping, uh, listeners, you know, they can go on for 10 to 12 hours. And right. so yes. I, I, it was almost out of necessity that I started looking for, cause I can't, I, I, whatever Dean it is that makes one a good roper, I do not have it. We have tried. My husband used to put on team roping with a family out of El Paso and they had at the time, it was a family of seven kids and they all started learning how to rope uh, almost before they could walk. And the two eldest were girls at the time were, I think, 14 and 16. And they were and are absolute phenomenon. Claire and Caroline Taylor are their names. They're these beautiful, brassy, red-headed dynamos. And at 14 and 16 years old, you know, all the older guys who were at the team roping were trying to, you know, wanted to go in and pair up with them just because they were so good. And I, I was so blown away by, it's interesting, I think people think of, from outside, uh, people who have not grown up in Western culture, there are all these kind of myths or ideas about, you know, what it is to be a cowboy and, and what it takes. And, and you see certainly more cowboys and cowgirls. And watching Caroline and Claire just, kill it at this very, you know, masculine enterprise. They were often like the only women there and they were teenagers. I was just blown away. Um, And that began the process of wanting to tell a story about young women who had made a choice in their life to not, you know, that didn't, weren't like me who rode horses when they were little, but who had really committed to saying, you know, my life is, based on, you know, this Western identity, this, these, this lifestyle that is foreign to most of the country and requires a tremendous amount of resilience and strength and fortitude. So watching these two young women team rope sort of kicked off this entire wind change in my career, both personally and professionally. While I was forging ahead and shooting these indie movies and still had you know, was spending half my time in New York, I became really fascinated in the prospect of finding other women who 
were similar to Caroline and Claire in terms of their mastery of a world that was considered to be very masculine, but in different ways. And so I passed this idea of wanting to do a documentary about young cowgirls. And I reached out to Pat Riley at the Cowgirl Museum. She put me in touch with Johnny Jonkowski and Barbara Van Cleve. And I started, you know, making phone calls and doing research and having long conversations with these amazing women from an earlier generation. Through them, found the other two women that I wanted to follow. Kristen Harris, who is a brilliant Western musician, but also trains Mustangs and has won the top accolades at the Western Music Association Awards for the last five years. And so she was someone that I found at the Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Alpine, and, and we became friends, and I, I started following her. And then through Johnny Jankowski, I tracked down a woman named Brittany Miller, who at the time was maybe 20, 21 years old, and had just decided that she wanted to start riding Bronx. And in the last five years, these three women have gone from, they were already very good at what they were doing, and they just took it to the next level. Kristen went from playing half-empty rooms at, you know, small cowboy poetry gatherings in far-flung places to being on American Idol, to releasing several records, to winning accolade after accolade for her songwriting and really celebrating Western culture through verse. And then Brittany Miller, I think at this point, has probably been on close to 500 Bronx and has really made a name for herself as one of the few women who are forging their path in a world that is typically reserved for men, all the way up to the level of the NFR. So I sort of, I, I tease them that they're, they're all who I want to be when I grow up, even though, you know, I could probably be all other mothers. I, I just think that it is so important as female storytellers, regardless of our genre, it is so important to tell the stories that allow a new generation of women to realize that there is a way forward in a world that is often mostly populated by men. And that was certainly my case as a cinematographer and as a director. They were girls when I met them. They are women now. They are forging their own way and, and blazing a trail that younger women seeing them, it will not be a strange thing to say, oh, I want to ride a bronc or, oh, I'm going to be a world-class team roper. It's a very long and convoluted way of, of explaining that the, the way, my way into the Western culture certainly came through marrying a cowboy. I mean, I live on a ranch. We've got a bottled baby goat that just came in from feeding, and we've got horses, and my stepson has raising a herd of longhorn cattle. I mean, I'm definitely deeply ensconced in that world through my own personal life. But what really drew me to it thematically and made me fall in love with telling those stories are Claire Taylor, Kristen Harris, and Brittany Miller, and the examples that they were to me of what a strong young woman can and should be. I find it very interesting that just you as a viewer at a team roping, kind of seeing that culture, not really being immersed in it just yet, that you you know, saw the significance of women competing alongside the men. That's something that's very important to us at the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame and what a lot of our honorees, what they're they're known for. They work right alongside with the men or run ranches and definitely forge away for themselves. You talked about this project, The Year in the Life, with these three cowgirls, and you were able to you know, see it from the beginning works as they began their life as a cowgirl. And then, like you said, five years later, what do we have to look forward to with this project on when viewers could maybe watch this or what, what plans do you have for it now? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, my plan was once I found these characters that it was going to be a year in the life. And then, you know, the, the great truth of documentary filmmaking is making a documentary is a little bit like raising a child. You can have every aspiration for what you want it to be, but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be its own thing. And it is a product of a lot more than your hopes and dreams. So in my case, you know, life happened. My dad got diagnosed with cancer. My mom had some health issues. My husband lost his brother. You know, a lot of things happened one thing after another, and there there wasn't time or money or, or energy to devote to anything apart from dealing with the crisis at hand. 
and I, I definitely went through a moment where I thought, oh God, I've missed, I've missed so much. Claire had a child and Kristen was on American Idol and Brittany was on a ride TV series. You know, all these huge things had happened for these young women that I wasn't there for. And for a moment, I, I felt like I'd missed my window. And then weirdly, it, it sort of opened up again because I realized that some of my favorite documentaries are, are things that one beautiful things that film can do is it can really compress time in a way. And so the goal is at some point in the next year or two to go back and revisit each of these stories after the passage of, you know, seven years and to be able to stitch together something that traverses time. Because I, what I think is remarkable about all three women is that they're still doing, it. you know, this isn't a passing Fancy. This is their entire life is committed to and dedicated to these choices that they knew were their choices when they were 17 years old. And I, I think, you know, I think of myself when I was 17, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I certainly didn't know how to get there. And so in some ways, the story becomes even more remarkable by stretching it over a canvas of time. So my goal is to go back and it's been hard because the last year is, it's been, Tremendously frustrating because I actually have had the time to go and spend, but with the pandemic, it hasn't been possible. So that's in the work. In a marvelous way, all of those women have been such tremendous teachers to me because the reality is if I hadn't spent the time I had spent with them when I spent it, I would not have had the knowledge to go into Yellowstone feeling so fluent in that world. I mean, I hadn't behind two dozen shoots with her at, in rodeo arenas, I wouldn't know the best camera angles to shoot Jimmy riding a bronc. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so strangely, that documentary pursuit, I didn't realize it at the time, but was the most perfect training for what has really become the most tremendous creative experience of my life. And also, you know, the longest relationship I've had with the world of, of film and television, which has been working on Yellowstone for the last four years. So, Christina, on Yellowstone, you've been a camera operator, you've been a, a, a DP, a director of photography, you've also served as a director. But for our listeners, can you break down for them what the distinctions between what does a camera operator do and what does a director of photography do? Sure. It's funny because, like I said, I didn't know what those things were on my first day at film school. So um, <laughs> it's, it's good to remember that most people still don't know. Yeah. Um, so on, on any film, TV show, the director is directing the actors and they are also making all of the creative choices in terms of what things are going to look like or feel like, what the props are going to be. But in order to make all those choices, they have a number of really important allies who are the department heads for each of those departments. So the costume designer, they collaborate on the vision for the costume, and the production designer collaborates with the director on the vision for the set. And the director of photography, also known as the cinematographer, collaborates with the director on what the image is going to look like. So that's everything from where the camera is going to go, is there going to be a big long dolly move pushing into the scene? Are you going to cover the conversation really close to someone's face or from very far away? So they're in charge of collaborating with the director on that, but also directing the lighting and making sure that the actors look the way the actors are supposed to look, that the scene feels the way it's going to feel. You know, is there one light on in the kitchen or all the lights on in the kitchen? You shoot it at sunset when the light is golden or do you shoot it in the middle of the day when the light feels very harsh so they're all tools and storytelling and the, the relationship between the director of photography and the director is as varied as the kind of movies and tv shows there are i've worked with directors who say i want the camera here i want you to pan this way this quickly i want the light to go over there there people really know exactly what they want to look like and then I've also worked with directors who say, I'm going to be over here working on the performance of the actor, just make it look good. And so depending on the projects you seek out, you can have a tremendous amount of 
creative control as a director of photography in terms of what the show looks like, but also in terms of how the stories are told. So that's the relationship between the director and the director of photography. And then underneath the cinematographer, you have camera operators. And so the cinematographer, the director of photography, is not most of the time, especially on bigger movies or TV shows, is not usually operating a camera themselves. They're usually sitting at a set of monitors. You know, Yellowstone, for example, is a three-camera show. So we always have, almost always have three cameras going at any given time. Sometimes more if it's a big action sequence, sometimes less if you're in a small room. But as a director of photography, I will be sitting at the monitors in what you call video village with the director and with the script supervisor. And we will be watching all three images at the same time. And I will be talking to my camera operators saying, Scott, can you hand write? And Mike, can you raise your camera a little bit? And Abby, I want you to start on the horse's hooves and then go up to the, the saddle. So season one of Yellowstone, I was a camera operator. And I was working under a brilliant cinematographer that I've known for a very long time named Ben Richardson. He'd done the movie Wind River with Taylor Sheridan and then took the created the look of Yellowstone on season one. So I was a camera operator on season one under Ben. And then season two, Ben stepped away to do another project. And I took over as one of the DPs on season two. And then season three, I was shooting a film for Tate Taylor called Breaking News in Yuba County that's actually coming out next month. And so I wasn't available to shoot season three of Yellowstone, but I was asked to come back to direct two episodes because I wasn't available the entire season as a DP, but I was available for a window of time to come in and direct. And then this past season, season four, I was the cinematographer for three of the blocks, and one of those blocks I also directed. It's such a tight-knit family at this point, and I've been collaborating with the same people for four years on the show that weirdly, there seems like a lot, but those things all sort of dovetail together. And I don't think I could necessarily or would want to necessarily direct and DP at the same time on a different project. But because the people that I am working with on my crew know me so well and know the show so well that say, bring a big, pretty light through this window. I'm going to go over here and talk to Kevin. I'll be back in 10 minutes. And it happens. You know, it's a dream job. And it's, it's a dream job with a dream family in a dream world with a dream boss. And I, I pinch myself every day that I walk on the set that, I have the opportunity to do it, but also that I got there the way that I got there. And I, I know that I do know the world enough to, you know, protect its authenticity in a way that I wouldn't if I'd never left New York. When you were describing your role as a director of photography and how they work in collaboration with a director, so the director makes creative choices. And then as you described it, they have department heads who are, who are allies and I'm trying to figure out how this works. I mean, does the director and the director of photography sit down with the script? And do you go line by line to say, okay, when he says this line, I want this lighter, this, I mean, is it that meticulous? It really depends on the project. I will say Yellowstone, and part of the reason it's such a dream job for me, is I, I think the best analogy is to compare it to playing music. Right. So if you're with a group of musicians and everyone's given the sheet music separately and you all have to show up and play at the same time, but you're not really going to get a lot of time to rehearse, you got to go by the book, right? You can't really vamp or you, you can't get too creative because there isn't a relationship there for anyone else to respond to you if you're getting too creative. You just kind of have to do what's on the page. And I've definitely been on projects that are like that, where... You know, and it, look, some of the greatest directors, I mean, all directors in their own way are, have to be control freaks on some level, right? And some of the greatest directors on the planet literally will, you know, tell actors, okay, turn your head 45 degrees to the left and look up and then say the line. And that's one form of, you know, directing. And then I, I personally, my favorite creative relationships are with either as a director working with a DP or as a DP working with a director, are where there is room to let the magic happen. And so on Yellowstone, season one, Taylor and Ben, they didn't have prep. They, they started shooting and Taylor directed every episode and Ben shot every episode. And 
you know, there were times where they were rolling into locations that like maybe they'd only seen pictures of. And so the cadence of the show was born out of season one. Now, having just finished shooting season four, we're four years into a kind of jazz. And, and some of the musicians have changed, but the way the show happens has not. So what that means is for me, and I have worked with directors as a DP, I have worked with the directors on the show who really had specific ideas. I want to open on a hand on the door, and then I want to jump back to a wide shot. And so we talk through the script, and we make a list of all the shots that we want to have and how to get them in a timely manner. When I shoot for Taylor, you know, he has it in his head, and he's incredibly fluent in the language of cinema, as am I. And so he also realizes that magic really happens when you give actors the space to let it happen. So we we don't sit down and pour over the script and what's got to be what unless it's something that requires, you know, a crane or we've got this car chase and we want to have a camera in the back of the car. Specific things that require specific equipment, you need to think about in advance. But in in terms of making the choices that ultimately become the TV show, especially when you're shooting with three cameras, one camera is always kind of getting the conservative, meaty, beautiful, the shot where everything happens. You're making sure you're telling the story, but then your B or your C camera is often going off and like getting details and, you know, an eye or a hand or the sun going down over the mountains on a really long lens. And then what the show ends up being is then the editor is taking all of that and and finding the most glorious, truthful moments. It is one thing when it's written, it's another thing when it's shot, and then it's another thing when what is shot is cut together because you have these really happy accidents that come from not just saying, okay, I need four shots, one's a close-up, one's a pan on the horse. And I think what's beautiful about the way the show was created and continues to be run is there's room for that jazz. And it, it allows the actors that room to find things themselves. You walk onto a set and you say, okay, you sit there, you stand there, say your lines. Okay, that may work. But if the actor is feeling something really strongly that makes them want to stand up and like walk to a window and all of a sudden that brings out something else in the actor that they're acting with because they're not looking at each other, then something completely different can happen that is impossible if you just stick to a shot list. And again, I have, I have worked on shows that I love that are the antithesis of that with directors who are very specific, who want something that they have in mind. They've already envisioned it. Can't say one is better than the other. They're just, you know, it's like, What's better, you know, Italian food or Japanese food? They're both amazing. (laughs) You know what I mean? As you're talking, I mean, shout out to the editors. What a job to put everything together. The team from the top down, really top notch, and all storytellers. They're all protective of the world that has been created. Do you think, or is there a difference between a female in these roles as a DP or a director, specifically on this very Western show, patriarchal family. Do you think that there's a difference in the way that it would be directed or as a DP, the shots that you might like to, to see is, as viewed from a female perspective versus a male? On one hand, I do think that there are qualities that are thought to be specifically feminine that do lend themselves to a different kind of storytelling in general, which I think is a topic that is getting a lot more airtime in, in the last five years or so. And I think people are realizing that so much of the content that we have all watched for decades has been from a particularly masculine gaze. At the same point, you know, TV is interesting because it's, it's different than cinema. On a movie, the director is the director. They are the person with the vision. They're the person in charge. In television, the, the show's creator with the help of a producing director, which is, you know, someone who is on set who directs episodes, but is also a producer and is sort of tasked with upholding the consistency of the show. And the writer, those, those are the people who are really in power. So the, the director is less of the guiding force in a weird way in television than they are in film. You are a partner. You are trying to add your own point of view to 
storytelling that needs to feel coherent outside of yourself. You know, I explain it to film students as directing a movie is like building a sandcastle on the beach, right? You can make it as big as you want. You can build it wherever you want. You've got all that space to play with. Directing a TV show is like building a sandcastle on the sandbox. There are perimeters that you have to work within. And some people hate that and some people love it. For me, it comes down to whether or not you love the sandbox. And I, I, you know, on Yellowstone, even though it's a TV show, when I'm directing, I still feel like I'm directing, I'm I'm building a sandcastle on the beach. There are definitely shows where you don't feel that way. And there are very strict rules. And really the writer and the producing director and the DP have more creative control than the director. You know, I've certainly felt on Yellowstone, as a DP, I have a tremendous amount of agency in terms of protecting the look and the design of a show. And that, that all comes from the top down. You know, Taylor is just a, a brilliant general and really emboldens people to do their own thing, but also makes us all really vigilant about protecting the show that we've created together. So I think in general, Yes, there are certain qualities about women that I am seeing more of in the TV and film space that have been missed and are very well needed. And it it tends to be from, I notice it more in terms of perspective and attention to intimacy and, and just looking at it through a feminine lens. When it comes to my work on Yellowstone, I think if it felt too different, it would be a problem because I don't want anyone going, oh, that episode felt like weirdly feminine. (laughs) You know what I mean? That said, you know, last season when I directed my first episodes on the show and partially because Taylor knew that I was going to be directing those episodes, the subject matter was incredibly female centric, dealing with issues of violence against women, dealing with issues of abortion and trauma to young women. And and so I think I was uniquely well-suited to be directing those episodes. I don't think a man couldn't have directed them. And I certainly think there are moments dealing with a younger actress who is playing young Beth. I think, sure, it's probably a lot easier to talk about things like that to a woman than it is to a much older guy. So there are certain places where it felt like it simplified things. But it's also hard. I mean, you can't, you know, I know women who are incredibly feminine and women who are incredibly masculine and people who tell stories from a women's perspective that are incredibly sensitive and others that are incredibly abrasive and rough. I mean, I think what's important is that we, we need more women's voices in the storytelling realm. It's getting better, but it's not there yet. But I also think we shouldn't expect those voices to be something specifically, quote unquote, feminine. I think it's just important that those voices are out there and they're telling, we get to tell our stories regardless of what those stories are. In Yellowstone, like, yes, it's a story about rugged cowboys, but like, there's also a lot of really sensitive, somatic stuff in there about relationships and grief and loss and love. And you want to be coming at it from a human perspective rather than a masculine or feminine perspective, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think you could have said it any better that there need to be more females telling those stories, but it's not necessarily that it would be told any differently, but that it's telling human stories and having that sensitivity around it. This podcast is made possible by the support of Nadine and Alan Levin. Thank you to Chuck Levin's Washington Music Center and Adam Levin for providing equipment to record and produce this podcast. The National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame is the only museum in the world dedicated to honoring the women of the West and from around the world who have displayed extraordinary courage and pioneer spirit in their trailblazing efforts. The museum proudly celebrates living and deceased honorees who represent diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, and cultures. The museum includes interactive exhibit galleries that feature artifacts of the Permanent Collection, a traveling exhibit gallery, gift shop, and a research library and archives. Currently, the museum's archives house more than 4,000 artifacts and information about more than 750 remarkable women. A simple way to support the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame is to utilize Amazon Smile when shopping on Amazon. Amazon will donate 0.5% of the price of your eligible Amazon Smile purchases. 
Choose the museum as your charitable organization at smile.amazon.com. We definitely are going to be asking you some more questions about being a woman in this industry. But as you've been talking about Yellowstone, I've been dying to ask you more Yellowstone questions. As <laughs> Diana mentioned, I am a super fan of the show. And the reason I'm such a fan of this show is because sometimes I run into different shows that are about the Western lifestyle or rodeo or ranching, and they're just not portrayed in the right way. There's a lot of maybe people on there that don't understand the industry. And I think you working on this set really attributes to this story being portrayed and told the right way. If you can go a little bit more into what it has been working like on this series, but how you specifically got this break to work on Yellowstone. I mean, the way I ended up there is, is marvelously circuitous. You know, I had been a DP for about 10 years and I had an agent that I wasn't really happy with and I made the decision to leave my agency, which um, was really scary. And I wasn't sure if the phone was going to ring and it didn't. I had done a bunch of indie films that hadn't seen a lot of exposure and I really wanted to get into television, but I was sort of told, well, in order to shoot TV, you have to have shot TV and it's really hard to break in. And I had left my agency expecting the phone to ring and the phone didn't ring. About four weeks later, my stepson got into a car accident, uh, was rear-ended as he was turning off our highway. He was at a full stop, and uh, someone on their cell phone didn't look up, and they ran into him at 75 miles an hour, and he had to be met back to El Paso. And thank God he is has made a full recovery. But it was a really terrifying time. Medical bills were through the roof. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a job. My husband had started collecting scrap metal and selling it in El Paso, and I was just making calls to everyone I had ever worked with looking for work. And, you know, a, a, a gift from God, I got a phone call from Ava DuVernay, um, the remarkable director, producer that I had been on a film festival jury with in India the year before. And she called to say, hey, I've got this show that Oprah's producing. We're going into our second season. Would you like to come direct an episode for me? It literally was, it was life-changing and it was life-saving. So I had gone from being with an agent who told me, yeah, you're not going to get, you're never going to be able to break into TV unless you get a break into TV and I can't give that to you and just stick with your small independent movies to suddenly, you know, one of my heroes calling me and saying, I'm going to give you an episode of television to direct. During that time period, before the phone had rung, I had sent out emails literally to everyone I had ever worked with in film. And one of the people I sent an email to was Ben Richardson, the season one VP of Yellowstone. And I said, look, because I, I had heard that he was doing this Taylor Sheridan project. And I said, I know you think of me as a DP. We had the same agent for a long time. I, I know I, ha I don't really have a, a resume as a camera operator, but I would love to come work for you on this show. And then I didn't hear anything for like three months. And I assumed, you know, it had probably been five years since we'd spoken and I didn't even know it was the right email address, you know. So I ended up going to New Orleans and directing on Queen Sugar, which was uh, just beyond incredible. Ava had basically designed the show to be a portal for people who had not been given opportunities to direct and giving them an opportunity to direct. So they just finished their fifth season. And I think almost to a woman, every single person on that show who was chosen to direct had not directed television before. And Ava made it a point to use this as a vehicle to create opportunities, create one of the most inclusive crews in the television space. She created this incubator for directors who she knew were directors, but they may not have known themselves that they could succeed in this realm. And the alumni of this experiment have gone on to direct on some of the biggest shows on television, including myself. I went from really like the world ending and, and credit card bills being higher than I'd ever seen them and really not having a plan to all of a sudden the universe turning on a dime and getting my first directing job to Ava. And I was finishing my episode in New Orleans. And the day before I left New Orleans, I got a phone call from Ben Richardson saying, hey, I'm sorry, things have been really busy. Do you want to come operate on Yellowstone? I need a B camera operator. So that's how I ended up on season one. 
I tell friends of mine, I tell students of mine, really the difference between people who get to do what they want to do in this industry and the ones who don't is just a whole lot of not giving up. Because if I had not been desperate enough to send out an email to every single person I know saying I need work, I wouldn't be here talking to you guys having directed four episodes of Yellowstone. The world has a funny way of breaking you down to a point where like you take ego out of the picture and you really just get resourceful and you know, I was just doing what my husband was doing, schlepping scrap metal. It's like, how can I be proactive to try to get us out of this really, really dark, tricky situation? And so I went to Park City, Utah, about three weeks after I got back from directing on Queen Sugar and did that season. And at the end of that season, both Taylor and Ben asked me if I wanted to come back to DC season two. I got to tell you, having worked with some of the best operators in the industry, I wasn't a great operator. I had operated on shows that I had shot my entire life, but I was terrified for the first three weeks that I was going to get fired because it's a completely different role. You know, everything from when you're a DP, you are in charge, you have 50 people who are looking to you for direction at every given moment. You have to be conscious of time. You have to be conscious of money. You have, you have to have a bigger presence on set because so many people are looking to you for information and as a good camera operator you you should be none of those things you need to be quietly proactive you need to always be looking for ways to make your boss's life easier it's very zen you know you really are just focused on the image and that is your goal and so it was a tremendous learning experience for me and and luckily you know Ben and Taylor were patient with me in the beginning and I kind of got up to speed and, you know, my background in documentary and my understanding of the world was definitely super helpful in terms of becoming a more fluent storyteller. So that's how, you know, that's how season one happens. You know, Taylor has a, a remarkable sense of loyalty and also great desire of promoting people from within, giving people a chance to grow as artists. He's done it more times than, than I could calculate everything from, you know, one of our best camera assistants who's responsible for pulling focus and making sure we have all the camera gear and probably one of the best first ACs in the country as far as I'm concerned, Dana Rogers. Again, a, a field that is, there are a lot of female ACs, but there are not nearly as many of them as there are men. The best of them have had to put up with a, a lot, you know, to get where they are. And Dana's no exception, but you know, Dana had been with the show for three years and, and, you know, Taylor said, I will, if you want to be a camera operator, let's give her a chance to operate a camera. So he's always looking for ways to help people forward. And so, and I was absolutely, absolutely a product of that. And, and it's something that, you know, if I look at the people who have shaped my careers, Taylor, for sure, Ava, Absolutely. I mean, she really opened the first door for me. You know, Tate Taylor is a director that I've worked with a lot who who has put a tremendous amount of trust in me and has been incredibly supportive of, of my desire to both shoot and direct. You know, when you have these exemplary big brothers and big sisters in your life, you know, I feel very strongly that it's my responsibility to continue being that kind of person for the people around me and looking for opportunities to do the same thing and promote people from within. You know, that's the, the long way around how I got to Yellowstone. In, in terms of being on it, it, it is as cool as you think it would be. It is. It, you are in these beautiful places with wonderful actors in their performances, but as humans and, and friends shooting on the best cameras with the most amazing horses and the coolest stunt guys. I get to work with my husband, which doesn't get to happen all that often. He day plays as a wrangler and, and has done a bunch of stunts on the show. So it really is, for me anyway, it's a dream job. And I, I think so much of it is just because the people who do it all really love each other. And it is, you know, a lot of people say this when they do press for shows and whatever, and, it, and sometimes it's not true, but everyone is just marvelous. I mean, the hardest thing about shooting the season during a pandemic is you couldn't hug everyone every day. We were big huggers. You know, you'd go on the set in the morning and everyone would give you a hug because it really is a family. Like you had just recently mentioned that you got to where you were because people 
gave you that chance, let you try something new. And now you're able to do that yourself for people following behind you. I think that that really says a lot about who you are as a person in an industry that is very hard to get into. I do have one more Yellowstone question. I don't know if you will be able to answer it or not, but you did say that y'all have wrapped season four, which I believe it's coming out later this summer in 2021. Is there anything that you can tease or tell our guests about to look forward to in the season? Yeah, it wouldn't be fun if I told you anything. (laughs) I mean, one thing I will say that was different about this season that was just phenomenal is up through season three, we would shoot most of our work in in Utah and then would go up several times a season to shoot in Montana. There are a couple of sets that are fixed pieces in Montana. The ranch, all the exteriors of the ranch are actually in Darby, Montana. And this season, for a myriad of reasons, we shot the entire season in Montana. And it's just really liberating when you're not trying to cheat one place for another place. So I would say from a visual perspective, um, for a show that is always spectacular, visually, it feels even more so because you weren't trying to fake one state for another. And we really took full advantage of it and and Taylor really wrote into it. It it, it was liberating and and I think it it will be well worth the wait. Well, and I am very much anticipating for the next season to come out. And I think when I will be watching it this time around after talking with you on this podcast and think I will have an even deeper appreciation for what it takes to make TV as I look forward to watching season four. We have at the museum a program called Cowgirls with Cameras. We do it in partnership with uh, Lone Star Film Society and Four Thirds Creative. And it gives girls an opportunity to get behind the camera to learn some of the things that you, Christina, have been talking about today with camera operation and editing and those things that traditionally, you know, our our girls are generally groomed to be in front of the camera instead of behind the camera. And so this gives them that opportunity to, to get behind the camera. And so hopefully we'll get it Fund it again for for next year, maybe this year. I don't I don't know to see if we can continue with with the program. But we've been doing it for three years, I think, Madison. And you know, and it's been great. And it's you know something that they don't get in school, or um, I, I can't think of anyone else who's doing something like this where we're giving school age, you know, middle school, high school girls the opportunity to see how how you do this. And that kind of speaks to what you were talking about the people who've given you an opportunity. So important, and and you raise a good point, which is, you know, yes, women are groomed to be in front of the camera more than behind it, and the danger of that is, even when you are behind a camera, because you're behind a camera, nobody sees that you're behind a camera. You know, you have to see it to be it, right? So, like, I didn't know what a cinematographer was when I went to film school. I certainly hadn't heard of any female cinematographers. I mean, for me, it was the boring Oscar that came before Best Director that was usually (laughs) won by some older Eastern European guy with white hair. You know, I had no idea what he did. And and I think especially now where media has been somewhat democratized because anyone who has a cell phone can make a movie, it, it's really, it is important for young women to see examples of that because in the same way as, that it's important to steer women toward, young women towards math and science in a really kind of aggressive way because so often we're, we're as, I mean, I certainly felt as a young woman, I was steered more into the humanities. And I mean, even when I got to film school, I was terrified I was going to break the camera. I didn't know how to work the computer. I mean, the fact that I became someone who does technical things for a living is a surprise to me as much as it is anyone else, <laughs> you know, for someone who wanted to be Broadway musicals when I was growing up. The fact that, like, I'm I'm dealing with codecs and, 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 and cameras and resolution and, and stuff, I... You know, I, I still have to pinch myself, but it's the, way, the place I ended up. But I think what you guys are doing is, is marvelous and, and, and really needed. In this podcast, Diana and I approach the very same topics, guests, and industry from different vantage points, as we have different backgrounds, demographics, and interests. Join us for a quick reflection to hear our own take of what did she say? What struck me was when she was talking about that time in her life when 
they were out of money and her stepson had been in an accident and she was desperate for work and she said the world breaks you down and then for any of us we can either just kind of give up and get mad and start placing blame and give it a half try and spend some time on why does this happen to me or you set every bit of that stuff that negative wallowing wallowing in self aside and you can double down and push and do as she did just the focus and determination to put the junk aside whether you know you created it or it happened to you she said she started emailing people and calling people she hadn't talked to in literally years and she asked for any kind of work. She didn't ask for money or a loan. She asked for any kind of work. And I can imagine how humbling that was for her and how desperate she was, but look what it got her. And that that just really struck me. And it also tied back to something she said earlier in the conversation that it's important to show girls there is a way forward in a world full of men, and of course, particularly in her specific area of work. I agree, and I think it just shows her resilience. I think her upbringing kind of led to the attitude that she has, no matter what, you just figure it out, you find work. And what stood out to me, being very similar to her, that I was not raised on a ranch in the Western lifestyle. I chose it. I discovered it and wanted to make a life for myself in that. And she did that very same thing. She fell in love with the Western lifestyle. She now lives in Texas. And she, just watching a team roping, saw I need to make a documentary about something. Team roping, cowgirls, the Western lifestyle, and tell these stories. And in particular, at one of the first team ropings that she attended with her husband, she saw the significance of women roping alongside the men and knew that was something in a story that did need to be told and just really stood out to her. And that's that's what kind of ties us back into it because that's what our cowgirl honorees are known for. If you like this podcast, consider giving to the mission of the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame to preserve and tell the story of the cowgirl through artifacts, research, education, and the Hall of Fame. Visit cowgirl.net to donate and find out more information. Be sure to keep up with the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame through our social media channels. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.